<laughs> Small crowd today. Okay. Yep. So there will <laughs> there will be a few extra slides from that, but that gives you the yeah. There's a <clears throat> so last week <clears throat> we quickly went through and covered Daniel chapter eleven. Uh, Essentially, verses 1 through 35, and then we jumped over into 1st and 2nd Maccabees and did some reading there. <clears throat> and I did promise that we were going to make a PowerPoint, do some comparisons. And basically, this section of Daniel chapter 11. I'm going to several different places. My mind is. Um, I want to start out. I don't have all of these bookmarked. But I can flip to where I'm. Yes, go. Thank you. Okay. So this is John Walford's statement about Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 through 35. The amazingly detailed prophecies of Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 through 35, contain approximately 135 prophetic statements that have all now been fulfilled. These verses serve as an impressive introduction to the events that are yet future. Those critics who assailed this chapter as being so accurate that it could not possibly be written before the events, and yet also attempt to find discrepancies that support their contention that this is pseudo-Daniel, is a poor historian, are actually arguing on both sides of the question at the same time. The fact is that there is no supported evidence that can contradict any statement made in these verses. The contention that it cannot be prophetic because of its accuracy involves assumptions that would undermine the entire prophetic scriptures. The accuracy of this prophetic word is one more bit of supporting evidence that the prophecy yet unfulfilled will have the same precise fulfillment in the future. And that's John Walbert's comments on his, basically his summary of Daniel chapter 11, verses 1 through 35. That's why we're spending the time on them that we're spending, is to understand how accurately these verses predicted the future. And Walver does a good job, I think, and I agree with him, to sort of take a break between verse 35 and 36, because starting at 36, through the rest of the book of Daniel, we enter into this prophetic realm where it is really hard to tell are we talking about one or two or three or how exactly in prophetic time future time what are we talking about <clears throat> and that's where we'll pick up next week we'll start in verse 36 and see how far we get this week we're going to jump back and I'm debating I'm going to read the whole thing so I'm just going to open up in prayer here in a minute 
one last sidetrack before we get into the PowerPoint. Uh, just so that you know, because of everything that we read last week, it relates to what Jewish people today celebrate as Hanukkah. Uh, by the way, Hanukkah begins tonight at sundown for the Jewish people. So, yeah, interesting coincidence that we're here at this time. Uh, it was not by my design. Uh, I have done a little bit of reading up and on Hanukkah. And just to show you, see if I can actually get this to pull up. It is <clears throat> interesting that, so the story of Hanukkah, I went to, uh, this is a Jewish site, myjewishlearning.com, talking about Hanukkah. And they celebrate the oil, and we've read First and Second Maccabees, and we didn't actually read anything about it. Uh, the Jewish people still believe you only find First and Second Maccabees in the Catholic Bible, and you will quickly learn. I was, my eyes were open to it in reading a tale of two Babylons and the woman who rides a beast by Dave Hunt, that there is, we typically think of the animosity between Jew and Christian, but that animosity is really between Jewish believers and the Catholic Church. Uh, and so the, the rabbis will say these are external books, first and second, uh, and they actually say that they, they, they didn't include First and Second Maccabees, even though it's got history, uh, because the Catholic Bible included them, is the way that I basically boiled it down. So the event they celebrate, now this makes sense, and why am I going all here again? The more I've thought about this, the more <clears throat> I think um, in what Dr. Michael Heiser said, the Second, second Temple mentality, so what was the mindset of the Jewish people in the days when Jesus was walking the earth? They probably were celebrating some form of Hanukkah, mm -hmm. but it's not the Hanukkah that the Jews celebrate today. Because remember, out of, there's only one name repeated in the list of the 12 disciples, and that was Judas. And that came, we talked about last week, from Judas Maccabeus, who was one of these uh, Jews that revolted against what we're going to read about today. So in the mindset over and over of the Jewish people, they remembered this story of Judas Maccabeus and the Maccabees revolting against Antiochus Epiphanes and the cleansing of the temple and the restoration of the second temple. That temple was still standing when Jesus was on walking the earth. Uh, so it is one of the reasons, and if you remember, <clears throat> and I was trying to find, I got two or three different things here. Something I didn't know about is the... Maccabean heroes became the Hasmonean dynasty. 
And one of the things happened, so, and I, I found this interesting from my Jewish learning, they basically confirmed that it was following this revolt and this cleansing of the temple that you really had the two sects, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, begin. And the Hasmoneans actually kind of threw their hat in with the ring with the Sadducees. And they actually, so the reason that they kicked everything out that Antiochus Epiphanes did was because he was trying to make the Greek religion the one religion. Well, the Hasmoneans, generations after they won the battle, actually turned around and started becoming Hellenistic Jews. <laughs> so they supported the Sadducees. They were actually the ones that invited Rome to come in and protect them from all these other people. So the people who had been the victors turned out to be not that man, but his family, turned out to be the ones they combined the lineage of the king along with the lineage of the high priesthood. So they did away with there's going to be a separate king from a high priest. And so the rabbis who tend to fall on the Pharisee side really were not favorable towards the Hasmoneans. And they had another issue. Once Rome came in, uh, Rome was pretty much a military juggernaut, which means you didn't stand up to Rome unless you were a barbarian and didn't care, care about losing people or you didn't have a hometown to protect, so to speak. The Jews did. So the Jews that were there, and again, this is why they crucified Christ, is because they said if this man keeps stirring things up, in their mindset they were remembering Judas Maccabeus who incited a revolt against Greece and cleanse the temple. Remember what Jesus did in the days before he was crucified. He went into the temple, made a quart of whips, flipped the tables over, and said, how dare you do this? Everything in their mind was, this is another Judas Maccabeus. And if he continues down this path, we're going to take Rome off, and Rome is going to clear us off this rock. Well, that's exactly what would later happen because they did not recognize their Messiah when they came. So in on myjewishlearning.com, they go on to talk about they wanted to preserve this holiday, but how do they preserve the holiday? And actually in their um, Mishnah, and I'm going through the different areas. There's a different word. Uh, what is the commentary? It's not, ta is it Talmud? Is commentary? I always get commentary. And the Tanakh is the old, right. So it is the Talmud, which is a commentary on the Tanakh. Yes. I get those two crossed up sometimes. So there is the story. If you want to read about the miracle of the oil, you will not read about it in Maccabees. But you have to actually go over to, uh, I'm just looking over here, and I was trying, I thought I had it preserved, but I, I didn't. You have to actually go over to the Talmud where they talk about when Judas won the, the victory. 
and they got to the temple and they cleansed all of the stuff out. We're going to talk about that a little bit. They only found one bottle of oil that had been sealed by the high priest so they knew that it was holy. But it would only last for one day, but it wound up lasting for eight days until they could get everything back going and get the oil anointed and the temple cleansed. So what the Roman rabbis began to do is they kind of made this commentary and began to focus people on the fact that Hanukkah is about the oil and they use the one that we like to use Zechariah 4-6 uh, it's not you're going to rebuild this it's not by might nor by power but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts and they talk about the spirit being oil and anointing and there's so many connections we could make there that we don't and they talk about light, and there are so many connections there they could, that we should be making. And this would be an ample time if you have, I don't, y'all may, but if you have um, Jewish people that you know, one inroad is their lighting. This is the festival of lights. And I looked it up, and I had it, and I've probably navigated it off. And the thing that came to my mind when I thought, thought about the festival of lights is John eight twelve. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so I'm thinking all of this festival of lights we're lighting candles and we're talking about, oh, why not go to the source of the light? Go to the Messiah, who is the source of the light, who is the source of the oil, who is the source of... And that was the whole point. They were trying to, to get people from looking at Judas Maccabeus and looking to the Lord as the one who delivered them from Antiochus Epiphanes. That's admirable. And however, they went so far, that's what we typically find when people try to do things themselves, they go too far. They went so far past that when Jesus was there to deliver the temple, they went right past Jesus. They went right past the light of the world. And today is the first day ever that it connected for me just as I was doing the cross references. What is this Jesus being the light of the world? Now I understand it because I've, I've studied the Lagos and you go through John and you study his ideas. And I kind of understand it from the Greek perspective. But what about the Hebrew perspective? In the Hebrew perspective, when Moses led the slaves out of Egypt, and that's going to become important because Egypt is the south, the kingdom of the south, uh, Moses wasn't the one doing the leading. There was a pillar of fire by night, which is light. When Jesus stood there in that temple and said, I am the light of the world, it was a clue to the Jewish people. You were led out of slavery by a pillar of fire that was light. I am light to lead you out of your darkness. And just to tie all of this together, so when we celebrate or when the Jewish people around us, and maybe perhaps this is a minor holiday, 
I think we should be aware of some of these, and honestly, I'm weird enough, and a lot of you in the room are, I think, alongside of me. <laughs> uh, I started getting in trouble back in 1998 because the idea came in my mind. I wanted to write a sermon, and I never have. I may have fleshed it out somewhere. Will the real Santa Claus please stand up? Because our Christmas holiday... I see more people worship this commercial Santa Claus than, and just I was in that time in a uh, prosperity word of faith group, and I and it just dawned on me that people want to see God as Santa Claus and nothing more. Mm-hmm. And so the whole point of the message was, are we looking to God to be our light? And I didn't know then what I know now about this festival of lights where we can celebrate not lighting candles, but wouldn't it be good if over the next week we focused on how Jesus is light to us? Amen. And that's just kind of, and all of that's bonus material before we get into this slideshow. But all of that ties with where we're talking in Daniel chapter 11 verses 1 uh, through, I got 25 there, it actually should be <laughs> a typo, uh, should be verse 35. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and then we're going to hop into this comparison. Father, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. I thank you for these connections you've made for me. That Jesus, you are the light. And this world that we're living in, Lord, is ever so dark and I pray that you will be Lord for us today a lamp unto our feet that you will be the light that shows us the way in which we should walk every day Father I don't see into the future but you do and the darkness the unknown the mysteries that surround us they bring fear in our lives but to you the darkest midnight is as bright as the noonday father i ask that you will lead us out of darkness let us set our eyes on you jesus for you are the author and the finisher of our faith and you have walked the path before us even when it seems hard for us to understand that I pray, Lord, as we go through this, that you will direct us and guide us and nurture us into the understanding that we can absolutely trust you for everything. Since these prophecies are so accurate, you have proven that the future is no mystery to you, but that you have a book of truth, a book of reality. And you know, Father, out of all the potential futures, what will be the one reality? Father, we humble ourselves before you. Instruct us, teach us, lead us, make us confident in you. In the name of Jesus, Lord, I pray. Amen. Amen. So we're looking at this the trick here. I've got to pull up. Rob's got the PowerPoints. So normally we've got the screen, so he's going to... Uh, 
flip through as I flip through. As we look at the second slide, that was really good timing because you did it as soon as I'm like, man, is this thing connected somehow? Mm -hmm. So one of the things I wanted to look at before we get into it, and it's what's not included there, sorry, it took me more time to do the research, is just to give you an idea of where we are at. Because uh, Daniel is now over in Susa, which is at the Persian Empire. So that's in the bottom. We see where Babylon is at. And this map is a little bit confusing with the way they lay out the bodies of waters. I believe the two blue lines are the Euphrates and the Tigris that go down into the Red Sea. But we can see where Jerusalem is at. And Issus is up around Syria, and I'm trying to remember Carchemish. There's a new name now, so that map's got an old name. But we can see this region I almost wonder if that's not, that's right there at Turkey, isn't it? Yeah. It may be Ephesus. Maybe it's right in that. Yes, this may be Ephesus. And so you're right in that area with Istanbul, which becomes a very important thing in Christianity as well as in uh, history. Let's just, so now we've got a picture of the area we're talking. Let's jump into ver at verse 2. Um. And now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. So I've got the Brenton Septuagint there for comparison. I won't read it every time. But the historical information... Uh, that Walford calls out and several other people do is to call out who are these four kings uh, that are being referred to and understand that this period of time when we actually look and I didn't do the math if you look at about what is this weird BC time 529 minus 465 that's only about 64 years in reality, from the time of Darius I, who issued the decree that they would go back to Jerusalem until the end of Xerxes or Artaxerxes, where we got in the book of... There is a almost a hundred years, if not longer, period of time that is summed up in this one verse. And uh, Walvard calls out these four Cambyses from four, 529 to 522... Uh, and I think that's supposed to be Pseudiosmertus from 522 to 521, Darius the first 521 to 486, and then Xerxes the first 486 to 465. Darius and Xerxes sound familiar. The rest of them we don't know so much about, but basically it, it goes through Daniel's prophecy to bookend who these people are going to be. We know that Xerxes, and we talked about it last week, um, he actually is the one that stirred up Greece because he got all of his kingdom and he went after Greece. And we talked about the Spartans. We don't have to go back there. Uh, we get to verse 3. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And I like Actually, here I do like Brenton's. And there shall rise up a mighty king, and he shall be lord of a great empire. And we know we're talking about Alexander the Great. And the whole 
the very interesting thing is if Xerxes had not attacked Greece and stirred up the Macedonians and Athens and Sparta, I uh, don't know if it would have been such an attractive target for Alexander the Great. Then again, I am learning this breadbasket of the world. We don't think of it that way. I tend to think of this area as desert. Why are these, why are these people fighting over desert? <laughs> but when you look at this fertile crescent, and because of the Mediterranean, you've got Israel, and it is desert outside of a lot of these areas. But where there are rivers and where the Mediterranean is at, there are fertile crescents, and that's where the food is produced. So Persia was very rich and were not probably well known until they attacked Greece, but once they attacked Greece, and then if you're going to build a mighty or a great empire, you need money to do it. So you conquer the kingdoms where there's money. <laughs> so you go after Alexander the Great, went after Xerxes, and went after Persia where the money was at. Uh, we're going to see that come back over and over uh, where they chase the money. Verse 4, And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled. For his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. And this is where we just pulled out things here, and we're going to show you in just a minute if you will go ahead and I'm going to stay on this slide. If you'll flip one more slide, I want you to see the map as we read what's on the last slide. I knew I had to find some maps for this to make sense. Macedon and Greece went to Cassander, and I can barely even see them. We've got Pergama, and so we're back in the little green area. That's Macedon. So Macedonia is Macedon, and that's Greece there. You got here I can see it north of Pergamo. You've got Thracian and Thrace, and you start recognizing some of these ancient areas. It's amazing to me how names have changed uh, through the times. So Thrace and Asia Minor, which is you see Pergamo in orange. That's Thrace and Asia Minor went to Lysimachus. Syria and Babylon. Now, when I hear Syria and Babylon, I think of this little bitty area. But when you look at the yellow on this map, this is Syria and Babylon went to Seleucus, or Seleucian, the Seleucian Empire. So that becomes critical. And here they call it out, the Seleucid Empire becomes critical. Then everything in gray, and look where Jerusalem's at. Wouldn't you hate to be a border town? Well, guess what Jerusalem is? It's a border town between king of the north, Syria, and king of the south, Egypt, which is the Ptolemies, or the Ptolemaic Empire. You need to see this map to understand how accurate Daniel chapter 11 is. This, this map that we're seeing did not exist when Daniel wrote this stuff, because when it existed, the Seleucid Empire was basically the Persian Empire. 
And all of this came into existence because of Alexander the Great. And that is amazing to me to realize uh, how clear this happened. I want to read this, and I put it here. After Alexander's death, none of his descendants succeeded him. It wasn't for lack of trying. Alexander did leave three possible heirs. A half-brother named Philip, who was mentally deficient, a son who was born after Alexander died, and an illegitimate son named Hercules. The half-brother and the posthumous son were first designated co-monarchs, each with a regent. So you know what a regent is. You've got the son and the mentally deficient half-brother, so a regent is somebody who is actually ruling for them. They are the, the in-name ruler, but the regent is actually doing the ruling. But fighting among the regents eventually resulted in the murder of all possible heirs. David Guzik brings that information out, and when you go back, and I'll flip back to verse 4, and as soon as he has risen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided towards but not to his posterity. Do you see how amazing the Bible prophecy is? doesn't name Alexander, but it prophesies that he'll have a kingdom broken into four parts that will not go to his posterity. The odds of predicting that are astronomical. That's why people want to say somebody wrote this after the fact. They don't believe that God would give this future information to a prophet. I believe that God gave this information to Daniel the prophet. Uh, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. That's where we talk about uh, Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy. For our purposes, moving on, uh, we're going to start focusing on the... Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemaic Empire. Why do you think we start focusing on those two empires? Because of the border town. <laughs> so that's the Israel is in that border between the king of the north and the king of the south. So we, don't, we won't be doing a lot of talking about Cassander and Lysimachus. In fact, in short order, we'll see they all became conquered by Rome. And down the road, we'll refer to those areas under Rome, the Roman Empire versus Cassander or Lysimachus. Uh, but the Seleucid Empire and the Ptolemaic Empire over the next three, 400 years becomes a thing. So go into slide seven. Then the king of the south, who's the king of the south? The Ptolemies. Starts with a P but sounds like a T. <laughs> so that's where we got to get our history. The king of the south shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. So from Walford we have Ptolemy the first, Soter, from 323 to 285 B.C. And then it jumps down. It's weird that he would name one of his children, but he did. Uh, Seleucus, uh, Seleucus, 
Nicator 312-281, he took over Babylon and, and other areas. So the king of the south, one of, yep, okay. So I'm, I'm reading that right. Everybody reading the scripture same way as I am. All right, let's jump now to slide seven. And this shows us again, this is a different map that kind of catches us up. Uh, this was fulfilled in Ptolemy, the first of Egypt who exerted his control over the Holy Land. So you notice on that map, the star, I don't know why this guy said Raphia instead of showing us Israel, but the star is Jerusalem. Notice the change in the map where the Ptolemies now have control over Israel, where on the previous map, the Seleucid Empire had. Uh, so this is that what we see back and forth. Um, who exerted his control over the Holy Land soon after the division of Alexander's empire. The Ptolemies dominated this region. Ptolemy I had a prince named Seleucus who rose to power and took dominion over the region of Syria. That includes Jerusalem. He became more powerful than his former Egyptian ruler. The Seleucids are identified with the king of the north, and the Ptolemies were the kings of the south. So this is the last. The dynasties of the Seleucids and the Ptolemies fought for some 130 years. The stronger of the two always held dominion over the Holy Land. So that's David Guzik Enduring Word Commentary, where we pulled that out of talking about just this tug of war and Jerusalem is caught in the middle. I'd hate to be that city caught, but there they are caught in the middle between these people fighting. And that's why we see all of this prophecy uh, verse, the first half of verse 6. After some years they shall make an alliance and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. Okay, I have to select the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north so that she is a Ptolemy and is going to be married to a Seleucid. <laughs> so you kind of have to keep, and this is where we get the information. Ptolemy II Philadelphus sent his daughter Berenice, I'm going to call her Bernice, to marry Antiochus. Uh oh, there's a name that's starting to appear. This is Antiochus II Theos to form an alliance. Let's flip one more time and read the second half of verse 6. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up and her attendants, he who fathered her and he who supported her in those times. That's a hard sentence to read. Um, but she shall not retain the power of arm, neither shall his seed stand, and she shall be delivered up, and they that brought her and the maiden and he that strengthened her in these times. We touched on this last week a little bit. Antiochus II, his first wife, Laodicea or Laodice, I've seen it spelled both ways. I find it interesting that her name's Laodicea. Conspired to have Antiochus and Bernice killed. So how, when did she do that? Ptolemy II, who married her off to Antiochus, his whole strategy and plan, and this is where I knew I was going to be flipping back and forth, back to slide 8. 
uh, you see Ptolemy is marrying, and it says Greek Empire, four divisions, but that the orange is the Seleucid Empire. So you got the king of the south, Ptolemy II, is going to marry his daughter Bernice to the king of the north in the orange section. His whole strategy is if I marry my daughter to the Seleucid Empire ruler, we're going to make this one kingdom. In the book of Daniel, chapter 6, it's prophesied it ain't going to happen. So what happened? Ptolemy II, I'm back down on slide 10. Uh, Ptolemy II died. When he died, Antiochus said, well, this man arranged this marriage. I don't like this Bernice lady. I'm going to go back to Laodice. I liked her better. Laodice says, mm-mm, you hadn't read Shakespeare because he hadn't wrote it yet, but uh, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. <laughs> I mean, nobody. I don't care if it was arranged marriage or not. I'm not in for this uh, <laughs> tradition. So she poisons her husband and Bernice, but there's a very thing that, that comes out. An arranged marriage intended to gain political objectives for the Egyptian king is to fail. His daughter is a pawn in the international contest, and according to the Revised Standard Version, her child, a potential heir to both kingdoms, would inherit nothing but be given up, betrayed together with his mother and her entourage. So what Laodicea did is she not only poisoned Antiochus II and Bernice, but their child who would have been the legitimate heir to both the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid empires. But this was prophesied in Daniel, but how did this woman know that this was... I, don't, I doubt she ever read the book of Daniel. <laughs> and you see that all of this is wiped out, and if you go on to look, uh, it, just the intrigue, you think, man, this is a drama-like dynasty. And, I, it, I mean, it really is this drama that is hard to believe is uh, coming. So let's jump down to slide 11 or verse 7. And from a branch from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north. And he shall deal with them and shall prevail. Verse, first part of verse 8. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold. I do like the Septuagint here. But out of the flower of her root there shall arise one on his place and shall come against the host and shall enter into the strongholds of the kings of the north and shall fight against them and prevail. Yea, he shall carry with a body of captives into Egypt their gods with their molten images and all their precious vessels of silver and gold. So that's scripture. What happened? Bernice's brother, Ptolemy III, defeated Seleucus II, who was uh, the one who was supposed to take over the Seleucid Empire. I mean, Bernice had already... So that turned out to be, I think, her and Antiochus' son or his other can't remember but so that that didn't happen either just the way Bible prophesied the king of Egypt marched on the king of Syria and killed him the Egyptian queen is to be avenged by a branch 
Nasir from her roots, the idiom used in Isaiah 11.1, 1, as the inheritor of his father's kingdom, he is her close relative born of the same stock. So her brother is the one that avenged Bernice. So remember, Laodicea, this is like a soap opera, Laodicea kills Bernice, and that makes her brother down in Egypt mad, so what does he do? He attacks the whole country. <laughs> Uh, because it made him mad. The general sense of the sequel is plain. An attack on the northern fortress capital is successful and enables the Egyptian army to return home with great spoils. So it seems like everything is done. We get to the second half of uh -oh, verse 8. And for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Walvers comments from 241 to 223 B.C., that these two empires were at peace. It's amazing how it tracks with the Bible. However, do you ever, I forget where I learned this, but you know, there was this thing, and it may have been when we went through the book of Numbers, and because God told the Israelites to, when you commit a town to destruction, you commit it to destruction. You kill every man, woman, uh, who's been married and child, there were certain times if there was a female child, they didn't have, certain times they didn't have to kill them, but most of the time they even said wipe them out. Why? In the South, we used to understand honor. And I was brought up a little bit of the Southern ways, and I'm not nearly as much now as it was to say, yes, sir, no, sir, you open a door. You, uh, you, you exhibit politeness and you expect it in return. And when you have extended, and this is one of the things that gets me in trouble, is when you have extended and you attempt to be polite and then somebody returns your politeness with rudeness, the next line you used to hear was, you, sir, have offended my honor. And I mean, honor was a very real thing. You didn't offend another man's honor. Well, he ain't got no clue what honor is anymore. Uh, however, the old world understood honor implicitly. David, if your great-great-great-grandfather had tripped my great-great-great-great-great-grandniece, we would still be at war. That was the Hatfields and the McCoys. You know, it was generations later, and why are we fighting each other? I don't know, but something happened way back then, and we don't have anything to do with you. I mean, Romeo and Juliet. So understand that was why that policy was in place. Here we see this being played out on kingdom level, <laughs> empire level. Oh, you killed my granddaddy. I'm going to raise an army and come after you. It's, we have no conception today of the harshness of the world that was. Thankfully, we don't. I'm afraid we're going to because I'm afraid law and order are going to break down and it's going to go back to something similar to that. Verse 13. Yep, we got there. 12. Oh, I duplicated. Jump into 14. 
So I wanted to show this again. I found this looking, and this was from a historical uh, thing showing during the Hellenistic period. So that's where we're headed, is the Hellenistic period. Ka'old Syria, literally meaning hollow Syria, referred to a large portion of the southern, southern Levant. And I have always been confused by that term Levant, but this actually kind of shows it. It thus consisted of the Beka Valley, Jordan Valley, and the eastern Mediterranean coastlines. The Ptolemies and Seleucids hotly contested over this land. So that's from a history book showing this is a historical fact that this area, you got Damascus, Tyre, Jerusalem, it was called Cold Syria. Uh, we don't even think of Syria anymore. It's still a country up now where they're showing Syria <coughs> on this map. We just see this battle over and over. So somebody's granddaddy or daddy had been killed. Verse 9. Then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. Who is the latter? Seleucus II hoped to retake part of his kingdom from Ptolemy III, who attacked Seleucus II and carried his gods off to Egypt. Ptolemy II. <laughs> so Ptolemy II has died, and Seleucus says, well, I couldn't defeat his daddy, but maybe I can defeat the son. But he wasn't successful trying to defeat the son either. Once again, fulfilling exactly what would happen there in Daniel chapter 10. I mean, chapter 11, verse 9. Now we go to verse 10. And his son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Good Lord. It's, it's tough to read, but again, this is some... This is God giving a message to an angel, giving a message to a man, and we talked about it last week. Then he's got to go write this down. <laughs> uh, what we see is Antiochus III, the Great. So he really becomes a very important character from this point on, Antiochus III or Antiochus the Great. Recaptured territory in Phoenicia from... Ptolemy the fourth or Philopater. So now you've got the great, no, you got the grandson of Ptolemy the second, and finally Antiochus the third, who took over after Seleucid the <laughs> second, is finally able to go down to Egypt or actually just recapture Phoenician territory, which is in that cold Syria area from Egypt. Yeah, <laughs> it's hard. That's why I wanted to put some maps. Let's flip back to slide 14. Does It, it doesn't show Phoenicia on this, but Phoenicia is really that area between Tyre and Gaza is the way I think of Phoenicia. Maybe I'm wrong, but what we see is... Phoenicia is actually the area... Actually, it's kind of Tyre North. Oh, okay. And it goes up... Uh, Toward... 
towards um, Mount Hermon. Okay. Up into Lebanon. Yep. With modern day Lebanon. So, and, it's, and it is along the, uh, the... I knew it was along the coastline. Yeah, it is on the... It is on, it's, it is on the... Uh, but that's what we see is... Uh, I wish they had colored this one in because you got the Ptolemaic kingdom, but you don't have the Seleucid Empire. And that's what you see is the Seleucid Empire pushing south again with Jerusalem being squeezed in the middle. Can you imagine what it was like for the Jews who were no longer a kingdom being constantly pushed back and forth between these two kingdoms? Slide 17 gets us to Daniel chapter 11. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north, and he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. Okay, so here we go. Thankfully, Walford helps us understand. Ptolemy the Fourth defeated Antiochus's forces at the Battle of Raphia. In 217 BC, so Ptolemy, so Antiochus took Phoenicia from Ptolemy the Fourth. Then Ptolemy went and raised up an army and attacked Antiochus the Great. According to Polybius, Antiochus lost nearly 10,000 footmen and had another 4,000 captured. Isn't that interesting? And he shall cast down tens of thousands. <laughs> And then, but again, well now we have this last line, but he shall not prevail. So let's go to verse 13. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. So Antiochus the Great launched a second invasion of the coastal region of Syria following the death of... So that's the key. I can't beat Ptolemy the fourth. Let's try Ptolemy the fifth. Or I don't. <laughs> well, I can't remember the guy that took over after Ptolemy the fourth. But so you see, this guy dies. Ah, let's make an army. Let's go attack again. And again, Jerusalem is in the middle. <laughs> Verse fourteen. In those times, many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. So what Walver tells us is some pro-Seleucid Jews joined forces with Antiochus the Great to fight against Egypt. They're, I think at this point they're going, somebody, figure out who's going to rule. And a group of them said, I tell you, you keep attacking We'll side with you. Maybe we can swing this thing in our favor. Uh, and that's where we're at in Daniel chapter 14. Let's, I mean, verse 14, verse 15. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. 
So what we find, and this is where you've got Mount Hermon, you mentioned it earlier, Antiochus's forces defeated the forces of Ptolemy, I was right, Ptolemy V at the Battle of Peneus near Mount Hermon and captured the city of Sidon. So all of this is going on just north of Jerusalem. They, I mean, you can imagine these armies just... Uh, let's get to verse 16. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. So, you have the Jewish people have decided to be pro-Seleucid. We're going to throw in our lot with the Seleucid Empire. Following the Battle of Peneus in 198 B.C., Antiochus the Great controlled the Promised Land, but it wasn't nearly the better roses they hoped it would be. Antiochus the Great now had a taste for war, and he had won a victory, and he wanted more. What does it take to feed an army? Money. Uh, verse 17, And he shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. So we find out that Antiochus sent his daughter Cleopatra I to marry Ptolemy V in 196 B.C. as part of the peace treaty with Egypt. Now i got to flip over because i got a note. Let's open up my Kindle. Uh, doo -doo -doo -doo. We're on verse 18. Let me get to it just a second here. He's got it. This I just find this fascinating is why I want to get to it. Verse 20. Do, 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 do. No, 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 no. Aha. Okay. Got it. 18 through 19. So I'm going to read this section from Walbert. It was bigger than I could put on a slide. <laughs> but I, again, I can't remember it, but Rome is starting to come into the picture, and that's why I want to read it. Antiochus's defeat came about in the following manner. And I'm trying to remember which Antiochus we're talking about here. Having successfully sustained his conquest against Egypt by defeating Scopus, Antiochus then turned his attention to the threat from the west and attempted to equal the conquest of Alexander the Great by conquering Greece. Who made this mistake before? Xerxes. Mm -hmm. So now Antiochus the Great is going after Greece. Repeatedly, we find that that's a no-no. But he was notably unsuccessful being defeated in 191 B.C. at Thermopylae, north of Athens, and again in 189 B.C. at Magnesia on the Meander River southeast of Ephesus by soldiers of Rome and Pergamum under the leadership of the Roman general Scipio. <coughs> when you take your world history number one, that is like a turning point in world history is what we're just reading about, this Battle of Magnesia. Uh, I always think of Milk of Magnesia, but it's this Battle of Magnesia where Alexander, Antiochus the Great is trying to emulate Alexander the Great and take over Alexander's old lands. 
but instead of fighting just the Greeks, now he's fighting the Greco-Roman Empire. And now you've got Greece and Rome joined together, and this little place over this Syria is starting to get Rome's attention. It's not good to get Rome's attention. This fulfilled the prophecies of verses 18 and 19 from a historic viewpoint. And from a historic viewpoint was important in removing from Europe the control by Asiatic governments. This paved the way for Rome's later expansion. So because Antiochus the Great failed so bad in trying to conquer Greece, it created a power vacuum that Rome moved in to fill. I'm just going to go ahead and right there, okay. Uh, yep, we'll get to that in just a second. Back to, and we had verse 17. I'm still, uh-oh, I'm still trying to figure out how to turn the, ha. I'll read now verse 18, sorry. Afterward he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. So this is where Antiochus attacked Asia Minor and Greece, but Rome intervened, defeating him at Thermopylae and later Magnesia, forcing Antiochus to abandon the conquest. And slide 24, we've got a map of the area that starts to show how things are. See, now the Ptolemaic kingdom has come all the way up north. The Seleucid Empire now is being quarantine to what we consider the area of Turkey. And you've got Rome, and you've got, I'm trying to read, what's in orange there, Macedonia? Yes. Yep, you got Macedonia, you got Pergamum, you've got, you're starting to hear the towns we read about in the book of Revelation, which I find is very interesting. And so this is 217 B.C., which is about 20 years before what we're reading happening in Daniel chapter, I mean, Daniel verse 18. 19, then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. One year after the treaty with Rome, Antiochus was killed while seeking to rob the temple of Baal in Elam. So he went into Greece, he lost all of his money, he lost his honor, and he needed some money, so he went to rob a temple. That sets the precedence when you need money, who do you rob? You go to the temples to rob the temples. They've got the money. Verse 20. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken neither in anger nor in battle. So... So Lucas the fourth Philopater succeeded Antiochus the Great. He sent Heliodorus, his finance minister, to Jerusalem to seize the temple treasury. Later, Heliodorus apparently assassinated Seleucus. So that's the oh, and the rest of the story. <coughs> Remember what we read about in uh, Maccabees about this great intervention by God against Heliodorus that said, no, you're not going to rob this place. 
So the outcome of history is Heliodorus, who was sent to rob the place, he did create trouble in Jerusalem. But he didn't get nearly as much as he was supposed to have gotten. And remember, the tax man always got a portion of the taxes. And so he was mad that he had been supernaturally pounced on by this Jewish God and didn't get the money he was promised. So he promptly went back and assassinated the king. <laughs> uh, so here we've got a lot of, I'm just going to read some of these things here. And I'm on slide 27 on, for verse 20. Um, and this is kind of where we had from Second Maccabees chapter 3. We had this story of Heliodorus. And when Apollonius met the king, that king being Seleucus, he informed him of the money whereof he had been told. And the king appointed Heliodorus, who was his chancellor, and sent him with a commandment to accomplish the removal of the aforesaid money. So forthwith Heliodorus took his journey under the color of visiting the cities of Colossyria, and that's why that other map became important, and Phoenicia, but in fact to execute the king's purpose. And when he had come to Jerusalem and had been courteously received by the high priest of the city, he laid before them an account of the information which had been given him and declared Wherefore he was come, and he inquired if in truth these things were so. And the high priest explained to him that there were in the treasury deposits of widows and orphans. And that's where we went on to read. Uh, and I finally found that comment I was looking for a verse or two ago. <laughs> uh, because it becomes important. And we find out that, you know, this was where he first met Onias. And Ananias was the high priest that was a righteous high priest. And they went through the whole thing and said, no, you don't rob us. Uh, then we bounce back. Let me check. Yes. So we bounce back, and in between all of this going on, you had Antiochus the Great. So it starts back here. History then repeats itself. Antiochus attempts to use marriage as a means of giving him power in Egypt. So the first time it was the king of the south was trying to marry his daughter off to the king of the north. Now the king of the north is trying to marry his daughter off to the king of the south. <laughs> uh, you, I mean, you just can't write this stuff. <laughs> um, but as in the scheming of Ptolemy, no such advantage was gained. This time the lady... Cleopatra I sided with her Egyptian husband against her father. Militarily, he fared better until 191. He was defeated at Thermopylae and 190 at Magnesia by the Romans under the command of Lucius Cornelius Scipio. Thus, his greatness, like that of Alexander, whom he was emulating, was short-lived. And this is the part where it connects it all together. His successor, Seleucius the fourth was left with debts he could not pay. That's why he sent Heliodorus to Jerusalem because remember his daddy went and robbed the temple of Elam and was killed. So he said, I won't go to Elam, I'll go to Jerusalem. Well, it didn't work out no better for him. And was murdered as a result of the conspiracy headed by his prime minister, Heliodorus. <laughs> Quit trying to rob the temples, guys, but they don't get it. Again, they need money. The temples have money. Now we get to 
uh, starting in verse 21 through 35, we start to focus on Antiochus IV Epiphanes. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. So following the death of Seleucia, Seleuc I've lost how to say it. Thank you. Following the death of Seleucus IV, his brother seized the throne with the help of the king of Pergamum. The new king adopted the name Antiochus IV Epiphanes, the name which means glorious. So let's flip, and I'll start reading this. And uh, So I wanted to pull from this history of how he came to power to fulfill this uh, contemptible person whom royal majesty has not been given. I wanted to read this section from John Walford's commentary. The expression to whom royal majesty has not been given has reference to the fact that Antiochus seized the throne rather than obtaining it honorably. At the time his predecessor died, there were several possible candidates for the throne. Probably the most legitimate ruler would have been Demetrius, the young son of his brother, Seleucus IV, who at the time was being held in Rome as hostage. So we got Rome tied into this thing again. There was also a younger son of Seleucus IV, also by the name of Antiochus, who was still a baby in Syria. Antiochus IV, the brother of Seleucus IV, was in Athens at the time of his brother's death. There he received word that his brother Seleucus had been murdered by Heliodorus, as prophesied in Daniel 11.20. Montgomery describes this as dying with his boots on a disgrace to a king. Uh, posing as the guardian of young Antiochus who was in Syria. And this gets confusing because we've got two Antiochuses in the story. <laughs> so you've got the guardian of young Antiochus who was in Syria, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, proceeded to Antioch, where by various intrigues described as he shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries, he secured the throne. Meanwhile, young Antiochus was murdered by Andronicus, whom Antiochus IV then put to death, although it is possible that Antiochus IV himself had laid the whole plot, which probably worked out. Heliodorus, who had murdered Seleucus IV, was not able to secure the throne and disappeared. Antiochus IV was therefore secure on his throne and began an active life of military conquest and intrigue in his struggle for power both against Egypt and Rome. One more thing here, slide 30. What distinguishes Antiochus is that he attempts to unify his kingdom by imposing a particular ideology. So this is a very, again, why is Antiochus the fourth Epiphanes? Why so much attention? This is why. He's trying to impose a particular ideology. Nebuchadnezzar had attempted this, or Nebuchadnezzar, this particular person uses an R instead of an N, had attempted this on one occasion in Daniel chapter 3. 
A ruler was coming who would make religion his main tool in opposing his will, and so would precipitate a conflict between commitment to the one God revealed to his people and the worldly wise unscrupulous way of life advocated by diplomacy. In the unequal struggle, God's faithful servants would go through intense suffering. The era of the persecution of the church had begun. So I wanted you all to see how all of these thoughts now are tied together. It's why Antiochus Epiphanes is so interesting and why we need to study who he is because he is a type of the one who will come. So when we go through, you know, we don't understand the book of Revelation because we didn't understand Antiochus Epiphanes. How is the false Messiah going to come on the scene? Evidently, if he follows this pattern, which is a good chance that he will follow it closely, he will usurp his power, he will come out of nowhere, but he will have enough connections there's going to be intrigue and an attempt on Jerusalem, and he's going to seem to at first come in and look like a savior to Jerusalem by his flatteries. Uh, and what is the end result going to be? The persecution of God's people. You see, all of it contained here, God gave us in Daniel's prophecies the future that Jesus would tell us to look back at to understand our future yet to come. So let's jump now to verse 22. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken even the prince of the covenant. That little short verse is powerful <coughs> in the fact that Antiochus or Antiochus Epiphanes defeated the forces of Heliodorus and the army of Ptolemy the 6th of Egypt, 181 through 146 B.C. So they could, what nobody else had been able to do, he did. He defeated the king of the south. He defeated anybody else who opposed him. When the false Messiah comes, he is going, I believe there is going to be a war and he is going to be the general in command and rise suddenly to power by defeating all of his enemies soundly. He also deposed the Jewish high priest Onias and sold the office to Onias' brother Jason. What we're going to find, he's going to have the temple rebuilt. But he is also going to use a religion, a one world religion, to try to unite everything together along with his victories. How do I, why do I believe that? Because that's what Antiochus Epiphanes was attempting to do. Verse 23, And from the time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully. <laughs> you just hear revelation in this. And he shall become strong with a small people. Antiochus took advantage of a power struggle in Egypt and sided with Ptolemy Philometer in a way that helped him consolidate his power. Let's go to verse 24. Without warning, he shall come into the richest parts of the province. He shall do what neither his fathers nor his fathers' fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods. 
He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And this is where it becomes important. Unlike his predecessors, Antiochus used his wealth to buy favor and secure the loyalty of individuals and groups. So the way, if he won a victory in battle, he didn't just keep it for his own treasure hoard. He was buying people off with it. So you understand that the, the one that's going to come is going to be a brilliant diplomat. Absolutely crooked in how he does it, but a brilliant diplomat. Verse 25, and we got, we're going to do 25, 26, 27. And he shall stir up his power in his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plot shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him, his army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the time appointed." So Antiochus thought he had conquered Egypt, but then the fella came back again and said, no, you didn't actually beat me bad enough for me to stay down. I'm getting back up. So Antiochus' ultimate goal was to conquer Egypt. The Egyptians tried several times to defeat him. They were unsuccessful, and each nation continued trying to deceive the other. Verse 28, And he shall return to his land with great wealth. Why? He defeated Egypt. He took money from them. But his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. After his victory in Egypt, Antiochus stopped in Jerusalem to loot the temple. Other people were hard up for money. He had just won against Egypt. He wasn't hard up for money. He was proud. So that's one of the earmarks for this false messiah coming the victories are going to make him more and more proud to where he gets to a place of arrogance. He believes whatever I want to do, I can do. Verses 29 through 30. At the time appointed, he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be... Let's see. Uh -oh. Now you change pages. At the time appointed, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For the ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw. Pride goeth before fall. And shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Now, you have a different version of the Septuagint, right, David? Not Brenton's? How does your verse 30 read? I'm curious. So it's Daniel 11, verse 30. And the Romans will throw okay. him out and arrogantly rebuke him. And he will return and be made angry against the Holy Covenant. And he will act and turn around. And he will set his mind upon them because they have forsaken the Holy Covenant. Got it. Read that one more time out of this that version of the Septuagint. And the Romans will thrust him out. Pause for a second. Who are the Romans? Then. Rome. 
who are the Romans then in the future? If you have a man that rises to power trying to build a one-world religion, who is going to attempt to attack him except for the Roman Empire again? Where is the Roman Empire housed? In a particular church group. Mm -hmm. yes. It's going to be different the future time because they won't win in the future. They may embarrass him, but the result is going to be the same. Continue on with it. And the Romans will thrust him out and arrogantly rebuke him, and he will return and be made angry against the Holy Covenant. He will act and turn around and will set his mind upon them because they have forsaken the Holy Covenant. So what we see is the false Messiah who has built this one-world church, one-world government this church government is going to attempt to turn against him and that's going to make him angry enough that he attacks Jerusalem and we're, going to, we're getting to the abomination of desolation. We're looking at all of these causes. He, so at the first, he's made a covenant. He's made an agreement. He hasn't yet said everybody will bow down to me. So these people are going to try to stand up to him at some point in the first three and a half years. And that's what we see happened in history. We see what Antiochus did in response. So let me read what Walverd says here. Antiochus led a second attack on Egypt, but was forced by the Romans to withdraw. On his return home, he vented his anger against Jerusalem and the Jewish people joining forces with the Hellenized Jews and seeking to eliminate all Jewish religious customs. That is going to be repeated again. So the Hellenized Jews meant those who were siding with Greece. There will be Jews who believe that this one world government is the government of peace and they're going to invite this person in and say, you need to destroy all of these old ways. All it has ever done over the last 2,000 years has caused war. You already got people that are saying that. So let me jump. Uh, and I'm going to read two different things because now I was really curious last week about this whole reference to Kittim. Why this reference in Daniel to Kittim? And I mentioned Rome, and you mentioned Greece, and we were both right. And I wanted to show you, okay. uh, because I was like, oh, okay. So this time the contemptible person will not get away with anything, will be, but will be humiliated by the ships of Kittim. Kittim is an ancient name for Cyprus, Isaiah 23.1, later used generally for the islands and coastlands to the west of Palestine. So that's why we're both right. So it's a generic term meaning any island nation or coastline west, north of the North Mediterranean west. It includes Greece and Rome. <laughs> Here the writer is referring back to the ancient prophecy of Balaam. But the power intended is Rome. So that's where I picked up from the commentators. They point to Rome. Right. But what we have got to remember at this time in history, it is the Greco-Roman Empire. Rome and Greece have now joined forces because Rome has conquered Greece. Rather than risk a war with Rome, Antiochus, although greatly displeased, withdrew from Egypt immediately and conceded 
Egypt to Roman power. Prophetically, this is indicated in verse 30 by the statement, For the ships of Kittim shall come against him, usually taken as a symbolic representation of Roman power. They came from the west past Kittim, the island of Cyprus, which was to the west of his kingdom. So now we get some history. The feet of Laonis sailed to Egypt after the Roman victory over Perseus of Macedon near Pindana, south of Thessalonica. And so we're looking at June 22nd, 168 B.C. In the Septuagint, the expression ships of Kittim is translated the Romans, giving the meaning, if not the exact translation, of the prediction. Disgruntled by his defeat in Egypt at the hands of Rome, Antiochus Epiphanes seems to have vented his wrath upon the Jewish people. The history of the period is given in First and Second Maccabees. That's why we spent the time to read it last week, so you get familiar. And then I just hear on the next slide, you got me so used to you've been hitting them. <laughs> I'm like, I can just click here, it changes. <laughs> So here uh, we, I circled Cyprus and then drew an arrow basically along the coastline of Greece and Rome. And so at that time frame, this is the area, the ships of Kittim. And it amazes me that this prophecy was given all the way back in Numbers 24, 24 by a Gentile prophet who, <laughs> who God sent and somebody else was trying to get him to curse Israel, but all the way back then, God knew about what was going to happen 168 B.C. And he hid it in that prophecy. Uh, the Roman fleet brought to Egypt the consul Gaius Populius Leonis, who faced Antiochus with an ultimatum by drawing around him a circle and ordering him to respond before stepping out of it. So much for the fulfillment, humiliation arouses anger and will result in punitive action against a holy covenant aided by those who forsake it. Again, that's the important part. So I wanted to go through and read just snippets of it. Isaiah 23.1, The oracle concerning Tyre, Well, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is laid waste without house or harbor from the land from the land of Cyprus it is revealed to them. So that's the prophecy in Isaiah, the one the commentators referred to. Numbers 24, 24. But ships shall come from Kittim and shall afflict Ashur and Eber, and he too shall come to utter destruction. So Ashur is Syria, Assyrian. And you just see in that prophecy, Eber, Hebrew, you see that Rome is coming to afflict the Assyrians and the Hebrews. And then just out of 1 Maccabees chapter 1, verses 29 through 31, And after two full years, the king sent a chief collector of tribute to the cities of Judah, and he came to Jerusalem with a great multitude, and he spoke words of peace to them in subtlety. And they gave him credence, and he fell upon the city suddenly and struck it very sore and destroyed much people out of Israel. And he took the spoils of the city and set it on fire and pulled down the houses thereof and the walls thereof on every side. He'll make a covenant with them for a brief time. Uh, verse 31. So we're on, I'm on slide 40. 
Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and the fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. So Antiochus profaned the temple and the altar, turning the temples into a worship center for Zeus. So what history says is he actually erected, on the Jewish altar, he erected an altar and an image of Zeus. It's, it goes both ways. But more than likely, it was an altar and an image where people would not sacrifice to God, but sacrifice to Zeus. If we start tracking down history, we find that in prophecies. How do we know of Zeus? He's the guy with the beard that rides on the cloud and got a thunderbolt in his head. Or the Baal of the heavens. So it goes all the way back referring to uh, the, the Lord of the heavens <laughs> and as a reference to Zeus who would be at this time that he would bring about to be worshipped such as hadn't been heard. Let's move on verse 32. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand Though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. A lot of people would like to take verse 33 out. Understand, Daniel is prophesying that the Jews will face persecution. When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. So there is an appointed time. Uh, just reading Antiochus's violent persecution brought about a Jewish uprising led by the Maccabees. Thousands were killed during this time before the temple was recaptured and purified. These events, because... These events because the precursor to the activities or become the precursor to the activities of the final ruler, the Antichrist, which begin in verse 36. Next week we'll pick up in verse 36. Before we're done today, I got to go a little bit of time. Let's see if I can get to these slides in the next 15-ish minutes. The abomination of desolation. Because we keep talking about it. We keep coming back to it and it's just... In my mind this week, and it's one reason I went back and added after I'd walked away from it, it was like, you've got to go back and look at the abomination of desolation. <clears throat> so to find out, we know we've started out here in Daniel chapter 11, and I'm not going back to here, but the first reference we have of this is Daniel chapter 8, verses 13 through 14. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. The words abomination of desolation aren't used, but this is a clear reference to the act that's going to be prophesied in verse 31 of chapter 11. 
The date when the temple was cleansed is well established as December 25th, 165 B.C. History states that. If we count back 2,300 days from then, we come to the year when Antiochus Epiphanes began his persecution in earnest, 171 B.C. That's according to David Guzik. I didn't have to try to do the math on that. <laughs> and I wanted to, that's why I wanted to bring him in. It's not just me making this stuff up. There's other commentators who are agreeing, and there is also a lot of disagreement. And I wanted to read this also by David Guzik. However, if we take to mean 1,150 days, it can refer to the time the temple was actually desecrated. Philip Newell makes this case for a duration of time during which 2,300 daily sacrifices would have ordinarily been offered, one at evening and one in the morning, as specified in Exodus 29, 38 through 43. Since there are two of these daily, the actual time period involved is 1,150 days, or slightly over three years. This is, in fact, this, in fact, was the time of the Maccabean Tribulation, 168 through 165 B.C., at the end of which the sanctuary was cleansed by Judas Maccabeus in his restoration of the evening and morning sacrifices. Which one of these two are right? I think both can be. So remember, prophecy, we always want it to mean one specific thing. But here we find out if you take it as the morning and the daily, 2300, it refers to a specific nearly three and a half year period of time. But if you take it as a whole, it refers to just short of a seven year period of time where Antiochus Epiphanes was persecuting Jerusalem. All of that is just, how do you come up with one number that can be counted two ways and mean specifically this? If you exist outside of time and space <laughs> and you know exactly the book of truth and the reality of what is going to happen, you can try to tell people and we're all going to stand around and look at you like <laughs> possum in a headlight. What? It, it, whack. Oh, now I got it. And that's kind of the way it goes. So that's, I'm telling you, the abomination of desolation is the key to unlocking prophecy. It's my opinion. Uh, the abomination of desolation, Daniel chapter 9, verses 26 through 27. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Remember that phrase. It wasn't clear until this morning. It's why I lost an hour this morning, probably. All of this stuff just... <laughs> Uh, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. One week refers to seven years. And for half of the week, three and a half years, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. That's the second half, because and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. I mean, just all of this stuff is starting to be so clear. Here we have the break between Daniel, seven weeks plus 62 weeks, which is 69 weeks, and the final 70th week. What is the separation? The anointed one shall be cut off, and Jerusalem shall be destroyed by Rome. 
there will be desolations until. When is it saying there will be desolations until he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week? Do y'all get that? From the time the Messiah is cut off, desolations are going to continue until the false Messiah shows up to make a covenant with Jerusalem. That's the way I'm interpreting it. I ho I'm hoping... Uh, but this is a covenant like that of Antiochus Epiphanes. In other words, it will be broken, and the sign then becomes the abomination of desolation. One more reference, Daniel chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, which we'll cover now and some next week. And from the time or we and and from the time the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up. There shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at 1,335 days. So this establishes the abomination of desolation as an end-time clock. That's my opinion. Other people have disagreed with me. I believe this verse is very clear over and over. This is an end-time clock. No man knows the day nor the hour referring to the rapture. But once the abomination of desolation is set in place, start your countdown timer for 1,290 days. 1,290 days divided by 360, the Jewish calendar, is 3.583 years. So Daniel said from the time of de the abomination of desolation, you can simply start marking off of your calendar to the final consummation of all things 1,290 days later. Isn't it amazing? Three and a half years, 3.58. Three and a half years after the abomination of desolation. This is why Jesus pointed to Daniel's prophecy of the abomination of desolation as the sign that would mark the immediacy of his return, Matthew 24, 15. That's David Guzik's words, not mine. <laughs> I agree with him perfectly. In this sense, 1,335 minus 1,290 days equal 45 days. The question is, are these 45 days a reference to a judgment period between the tribulation and the millennial reign? The only thing we can say for certain is, blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335th day. However, that would be a reference to the 144,000 who survived through the tribulation. And I read that just recently again. Next time they come up, and I wish our fellow was here, and they say, I'm, one of the, I'm going to be one of the 140, which tribe? Because when you read it, it gives you the 12 tribes. And by my Celtic heritage, I sort of wonder about the tribe of Dan, but that don't matter in the book of Revelation because the tribe of Dan ain't listed in those 12 tribes. <laughs> Uh, so I'm going by the way of a trumpet, not by the way of the 144,000. And I know I'm going to be at the 1,335th day because I will be with Jesus Christ before then and I will be there to see all of this take place where in those days God proves to this world His judgments are true and right. Let's jump over to Matthew 24:15. And I got to read the whole section because I'm that way. 
uh, Matthew 24, 15 through 22. So when you see the abomination, now who is this talking? Not Dan, not This is Jesus. As recorded by Matthew, Matthew was writing to whom? Jewish believers or to the Jewish people. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Why have I belabored Daniel chapter 11 verses 1 through 35 so that you, the reader, will understand what Jesus knew about. Jesus had been reading the Septuagint. Jesus' family had probably been separating Hanukkah where Judas Maccabeus defeated Antiochus Epiphanes. Jesus was familiar with all of this stuff. Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. By the way, if you go back, you read Maccabees, you understand that after Onias, uh, they actually had to flee and hide before the attack and the reclaiming and the recleansing of the temple. But you got to know Maccabees mm -hmm. to understand that. Pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. So great tribulation. Verse 22, And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, 144,000 Jewish male virgins, those days will be cut short. Well, yeah, we'll be cut short. So this established, to me, this is where Jesus establishes the abomination of desolation as the end time clock. Daniel said that from the time of the abomination of desolation, you can simply start marking off your calendar. Again, this is David Guzik, and it's just what we had read. You can start marking off your calendar to the final consummation of all things 1,290 days later. This is why Jesus pointed to Daniel's prophecy of the abomination of desolation as the sign that would mark the immediacy of his return. That's pretty important. Luke chapter 21. Let's read this. It's supposed to be a parallel passage. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. <clears throat> Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Hmm. Chuck Missler was the first one to point it out to me and slap me around a little bit. Say, so Matthew is written to the Hebrews. Luke, in his introduction, he specifically says he's writing to the Romans. 
So Luke is writing to the Gentiles. With that understanding, we see that Luke's record of the Olivet Discourse focusing on Jesus is providing the timing of the church age. The church age began essentially with the fall of Jerusalem and will continue so long as Jerusalem is trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. If you go back to Daniel 11.31, or no, no, what was that one? They shut up abomination. Where was that desolate, desolate? I've, I've lost it. I knew I was going to do that. But if you go back and you look at Daniel, you'll see that where he is making uh, the desolations. This is, I got, I need another screen open. If I can get it open. I got to see. <laughs> uh, da, 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 da. Oh, okay, okay. I know where I, we pulled that out because we're not there yet. It's chapter 12. No, it's make desolation. Yep, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, give me a second. Y'all ever do that? Mm -hmm. I get so many of this stuff. This is what makes it difficult, but I want to tie these two together. Oh, I know, I just read it. Okay, we've got Daniel 11, makes desolate. Well, I know somebody heard me. Let me finish this and we'll go back and chase that one down. I've lost my... Uh, let's look at the last one. I want to tie because we got Matthew's take on Jesus. We've got Luke's take on Jesus. Turn to the last one is Paul's take on teaching the Thessalonians, and that's where we're in 1 Thessalonians, and Serge, you covered it today about the Harpazo. They misunderstood what he was saying then, so he had to come back with 2 Thessalonians, thankfully. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining him and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. Paul clarifies what Jesus taught about the abomination of desolation. The abomination will be when the false Messiah takes his seat in the temple of God and proclaims himself to be God. When is that going to be? Three and a half years into the one-week covenant that he makes with the nation of I hang my hat in large part on my belief that Paul is referring to the Holy Spirit in the church in verse 6. So some people say the church, some people say the Holy Spirit. I say where two or three are gathered, there am I also. That's what Jesus taught, meaning that we, the assembly, we have not only individually, but corporately the Holy Spirit is here. 
the church is restraining the Antichrist. Therefore, my opinion, I will not be here to see the Antichrist because God, the rapture, will serve a purpose to pull the church, the restrainer, out of the way to restart that last seven-year clock. That's where I build my, and I know I've had arguments with people over that for 20-some-odd years. My belief has not changed in nearly 30 years about that's, how, that's where the clock will start. In other words, the final week of Daniel does not start until after the rapture of the church that Paul is teaching about in 1 Thessalonians. Hopefully, none of you will be here. <laughs> However, you do have the knowledge now, and maybe this knowledge will still be out there somewhere, that somebody can grab a hold to it and then go back and go, oh, the clock has started. What is going to happen next? And God has laid out in the scripture, boom, 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 boom. All of this is going to happen over and over and over. And the whole point that we're getting to is what Daniel has said there at the, in Daniel chapter 12. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at 1,335 days after the abomination of desolation. Two ways you're going to be there. You're either going to be in the wedding party or you're going to be one of the 144,000 Jews that God has protected through the tribulation and there will be a few people left evidently afterwards because they're going to need brides to repopulate the earth. But I'm going to take my chances on being in the wedding party because, you know, you got to have oil in your lamp expecting for when the bridegroom comes. That's why we're familiar with all of this and being prepared so that we know and we understand. Now, I have talked forever and not given anybody else a chance. Any questions or comments or things that before we draw this to a close, anybody else want to add or clarify anything? While I'm still looking for the... Why can't I find that? Because it's a desolate, desolate, desolate. Three or four times in one verse. While I'm looking for that, I'll let y'all... Ah, here we go. I know why I can't find it. It's in Daniel chapter 9, not Daniel chapter 11. <laughs> Found it. So that's where I'm tying up with what Jesus was saying. Is Daniel 9, 26, 27, after the 62 weeks, prince, in desolations are decreed. That's Daniel 9, 26. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. So... Daniel 9.26 says, Desolations are decreed. If you go over to Luke, that's where, what are our desolations? They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That's where I'm tying those things together. First of all, the fact that the Jews still exist today is proof that Yahweh is who he says he is and he is the creator of heaven and earth because not even Hitler with modern technology could wipe them out. 
Uh, so again, that ties all of that up together. And then that's what Jesus is saying there. They will fall by the edge of the sword, be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. When are the times of the Gentiles fulfilled? That's going to be the battle that the false Messiah fights is to give Jerusalem to the Jews and make a covenant with them for one week or seven years. You got to remember a whole bunch of stuff and tie it together. But it starts to become crystal clear, doesn't it? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if somebody thinks I'm going to wait out the tribulation, again, I'm going to say, no, you won't. Uh, very, very few people, if you don't accept Jesus now, you definitely will not accept him during the tribulation because with all of this information and proof, if you were deceived now, the deception grows worse when the rapture of the church takes place. The deception grows worse. Don't wait to say, I'll believe when I see the rapture. Odds are you won't. Yes. So what does that say about, this is where my mind goes, what does that say about us, the church, that this huge revival happens after God has to take the church out, <laughs> and the Holy Spirit out, and then there's this huge amount of people that are martyred right. uh, for their faith? I and mean, are we dropping the ball? I mean, what, why, why are they coming before Yes. I think Yeah, well the wake up call is when I start seeing God's wrath. Yeah. So the rapture is going to be explained away, but what we really are facing in the church um, is one thing we're restraining, we are fighting against the evil. And But we do that through prayer, through Bible study. We do that through ways that the world doesn't. Uh, and in the grand scheme of things, when you look over 2,000 years, the harvest that has been reaped, it, 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 is, it is tremendous what the church has done. I, I think it's the difference, though. Uh, the Holy Spirit's a gentleman. And a bru Jesus, of Jesus, it was said, a bruised reed he would not break. Um, the Holy Spirit will not force you to do something you don't want to do. However, when you're standing in a line waiting to be shot, and you're literally seeing people being shot and falling dead and hauled off in front of you, and then, then some crazy fire-breathing prophet says, trust in Jesus and have eternal life, it suddenly becomes crystal clear, I can't wait till tomorrow to trust in Jesus, and I can't go play with the drugs or the alcohol or the wild women, and I can't go play with these other things. I either decide for Jesus now because I'm dead in the next 30 seconds. Uh, so I don't, and that really, and really persecution in the church, we see that in Revelation. Uh, we have achieved a level of comfort, and I have. I'll be honest with you. 
Uh, I thought for sure, I was off last week, and I thought, man, you know, I want to get some holy time in. Man, I worked at the house so hard that I didn't make the time I needed to for prayer. I won't lie. This world has gotten the church so busy, and Chuck Missler says it, we're so busy about the business of the king that we forget to worship the king. And I think that's the answer. Where does the power lie? Uh, where do we see that revival power? When our hearts catch on fire enough to pray for it until the presence of the Spirit of God is so real that people are challenged by a supernatural presence, I pray, my hope, my desire, but the older I get, the more I get concerned about it <laughs> because I see complacency and satisfaction and contentment in the church to do things. I ain't talking about this specific church. I'm talking about the worldwide church as a whole. Very complacent except for places where there is persecution. Uh, when persecution comes to the church in America, the church in America will wake up and shake off what's making us slumber, and I don't know that we can control it. I would love to say, but, you know, I get paid once a month, tomorrow's payday, I hope, because I ain't hardly got two pennies to rub together, and so what does the choice become? If I'm going to be sold out for God, am I going to walk away from my job and walk away from where I have income for my family to be sold out? Well, I do that now, and then the world's going to look at you like, well, why are you homeless, man? They, don't, they won't listen to you. They'll call you crazy. Or when the persecution comes and we have no choice, unfortunately, I'm afraid that's what it's going to take for the church to be such a powerful force that God has got to say, i got to get my children out of there. I would love for it to be some other way. If y'all find some secret in there where we can take we who are in this world endued with technology, endued with everyday demands on time, and just become that sold out on fire Christian group, I would love I would love to be part of that group. <laughs> I want to be. But I know myself, work starts tomorrow. I've had time off. It's going to be from sunrise to sunset all about getting the job done. And I, I put God in there. But the revivals that we've seen have come on the hours and hours of people in prayer praying for the lost and dying around us. Are we willing to be burdened with that burden? and pray until we get through to God for revival. I'm hoping, I'm hoping Samson's a prophecy that the church will wake up from, we've been blinded by laying our head in Delilah's lap. Uh, hopefully the world forgets us until we, our hair grows back out and we can at the end, uh, in one move, <laughs> do something more powerful than we have done our whole life. I don't know. I don't know if that's prophecy or just my wishful thinking. Now, Lynn, sorry, you asked. <laughs>
<laughs> so <laughs> I didn't mean to go all there. That's <laughs> in Daniel's dark, deep thoughts. <laughs> that's kind of what I see in answer to that question. Uh, so it, it, it's a burden, but even I just feel that spiritual warfare is so real. And we think about it being as just this constant attack, but really what it is, it's this attack just so that we're complacent. I mean, the devil's smart enough to know, don't attack, don't attack them till they get stirred up. Good God, you get those Christians stirred up. It's, it's like the old Carmen song. I love that song. But, you know, but as long as they're quiet and as long as they're, don't get them stirred up. I wish God would stir us up. I'm scared you see. <laughs> I mean, it really is, but I know that we need to be stirred up. And I don't want an artificial thing. I've seen too many false fires. and God broke out against... Aaron's sons for taking strange fire before the altar. I don't want strange fire. Uh, I don't. I want the. I want the true fire of God. If it's gonna, if I want to be a part of it. Yeah. Right. No, no false hope, No false holy spirit either. Right. No strange fire. It's. Yeah, it is, and it really is, and just this, I know we've talked about in worship this past week, I've had time to sit down and actually flip through channels, and there's a channel that's like this worship channel, and I won't mention the group, and I flipped it over, and I'm looking at this thing, and I'm like, that's a rave. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was the flashing lights, the... There were guys dancing around without shirts on and just this, and this is like, this is what everybody associates with Christian music yeah. Yeah. today, and it was nothing more than what the world would call a rave. That's strange fire. It is. I have experienced the true, genuine power of God's Holy Spirit, and I want to experience it again. And with that, with the, particular style of so-called worship. That's what we'll call it, so-called worship. Yes, there are. there is some truth to that. Yep. There is truth to it. But then I, I call it like, I don't want to be disgusting, uh, a, a, a tray of brownies. Yeah. You've got this beautiful tray of brownies, and this person could be saying, yes, this is the... Jesus is my Savior, so on and so forth. But then there's a little bit of untruth that's in there. Because instead of being Christ-centered worship or worshiping the Creator, it becomes about me. Yep. So that beautiful plate of brownies ended up getting a little bit of dog dew in it. Mm -hmm. And it's destroyed that whole plate of brownies. Yeah. You know... Yeah, I did that last night. all that went rancid. Yeah, but it could be, you know, and when, when that worship is about man-centered, it's an abomination. It's yep. disgusting. There's, uh, yep, long, long <laughs> for that worship that is God-centered to the point yes. that the Holy Spirit is present enough, and I still read, and I got a little book from a fellow that was around here in Georgia. It's part of the church that I had 
been with, but they got strange fire instead of holy fire. Right. He experienced holy fire where he was a drunk, had been stabbed and bleeding to death, listening to them sing praises to God while he was laying in a ditch and he crawled to the tent meeting and got saved spiritually and physically. Amen. Where is that power of God? Yes. And that that's right. what I pray that we see because we're right here in the middle of an area that needs that power of God. Rob, you and I were talking. We've got people that come in and they're in bondage to the things of this world, to the, the witchcraft of this world, yeah, the, exactly. the sorcery of this world. Yep. Pray that, that God will pour out His Spirit so that they come in and hear in the church assembly, because I believe it's in the assembly, that in the church assembly that God's power would break out against that sorcery and set them free. I still believe in a God who does that. <laughs> and that's the kind of thing that makes us dangerous, that he's got to get us out of here because yep. we are restraining when we come together that way. Any other thoughts before we... They're scared to ask a question. <laughs> You know, what does it say about us, the church, and then, you know, are we really, you know, being effective? I think, I think of it a little bit more in a positive light in that we may be affecting people and influencing others in ways we don't even know. Right. Good point. And yeah. it, the things that we do say or whatever, or, or and the fact that we talk about it um, around people that, whether they believe or not, it's still getting in their head. And yep. still and that's... penetrating. And you know, it's like the Bible talks about, you know, God's word does not come back to him empty. Right. If we're continuing to, you know, speak about these things, um, we could be influencing folks in ways that we won't know until way later. And um, like what you were saying is that one day, when they, like you're talking about, when it's facing them, death. Right. Because right now, and even maybe through part of that tribulation, they're living comfortably because they're doing whatever yep. it is. Yeah. That, you know, and then, or, or even up to the point of the rapture, and then they see all these people that they used to see or talk to or whatever, gone. It's like they all disappeared. Well, and, and, and that could wake them up like you're talking yeah. about. Or when they face, then all of a sudden, wait a minute, they disappeared. They're not here. Well, I remember them saying this. And it's just that all those things might come back to mind during that. Yeah. I like. And I think, you know, sometimes it can be easy to, to, to feel like as a church or even as individuals, we're not, we're not like proclaiming Christ. Like, hey, you, you need to be saved. You right. Know, or, or thinking about, man, I haven't saved anyone this week. Like, no one came to Christ mm. while I was praying with them, you know, this month or whatever. And like, it may not even be that. It may be you're, we're influencing people in a way just through our lives or, or how we treat them or how we are around them, and, and that can be an influence that stays in their head versus all, in contrast to everything else yeah. around them. And when that time comes, whether it be the rapture and they see, oh, wait, they're gone, or like you're talking yeah. about, oh, man, I'm about to be executed. Yes. Eternity's on my doorstep, and all those things start to come back to their mind, and then it's like, I need Jesus. 
Yeah. I know where I'm, I now know where I'm going. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go there. So I mean, it, it, oh, it, we could absolutely. Just, you know, we could do the influencing sure. people in ways we don't know. We have got sure. to keep you know? preaching and preaching the whole truth. Exactly. And that's why I believe the whole counsel of yeah. God. Even though I put it in a very evangelistic draw way, it don't wait. But you're very well, because Paul talked about evangelism. Some get to harvest, but some have to break up new ground. Some some water, some plant, you know, some plant the seed, some water. And it takes all of that. It may very well be, because we don't know. The trumpet could sound, and what we've talked with friends and family, they will retain. And then when they're in that pressure cooker, that's when it will come back, and God will use it then. He mentioned that, you know, we sometimes make the error that we think it's our responsibility that somebody gets saved, and it's not. We are the garden tools. We're the hoe, we're the rake, we're the water hose. As the parable goes, the father is the farmer. Yep. His word is the seed. He takes his word and he puts his word in our hands, and he uses this as the plow or uses this as the rake or uses us as the thing that drops the seed into the soil. Sometimes all God did was... You're just a little funnel. He popped the seed on, on you, and it fell down and, and, and aimed right where he wanted it. <laughs> right. Somebody before you came and dug that spot up. And if you think about how farming yeah. works, they have different tools to do all the different jobs. They have one tool that goes in and, and plows up the line and makes a line. The next tool after it, with another tool in the tuck, is the one that actually pops the seed in. Yep. And then another one will come and water over it. Yep. And you're just one of those tools... But the harvest belongs to the Father. Right. And you go back to things like, unless the seed falls to the ground and dies, it can't come back up. Well, that pattern, I think, is the pattern we're seeing. At the end, all the seed that had been put in these people that had died over time, at the very end, all of a sudden, it sprouts. And yeah. And they get it. That That's encouraging. And it really is encouraging to think along those lines. It's wonderful. Wonderful. Any other? Let me close us in prayer, and we can depart, or we can talk. Or <laughs> Father, I thank you for the grace and the mercy. I thank you, God, that uh, just what we're talking about, your Holy Spirit, where two or three agree is touching, and where we are gathered in your name, you're here in our midst, and this is wonderful, Lord, that you are here in our midst, and we do pray. We pray, God, that like David said, we will be the instruments in your hand. And like Serge was talking, that we we will be continually giving out your word and Rob's heart and passion to be right here in an area, God, that is ripe for harvest. And for all of us, Father, here that we see together that your word is a sure word of prophecy. Oh, God. Let us be your willing servants, or we are your willing servants. And I pray that you will find us. No, make us. Make us the instruments, Father, that you need us to be. We are facing a war that we don't understand because we expect to be confronted and put down not made complacent and content. Oh, Lord. Stir up our hearts with the touch of your Holy Spirit 
with the touch of your word, with the touch of your prophecy, knowing what is to come, what Rob is saying. We need to look around and see what's here around us. And it's not in a method or in a way, but it is in you. Almighty God, you work through us and you do the work that you would have us to do. And I pray, Father, that when this assembly comes together and when this assembly gathers in your name, that you being present here in our midst, Father, that your light would overshadow and overpower and drive out darkness, that your life and that your love may all work together oh, to restrain the wickedness, the lawlessness, and to set free those who are held captive. Father, I pray that you will be blessed to bless us to be the harvesters in your fields. In the name of Jesus, Lord, I pray. Amen.